I'm going on my end here. Going <clears throat> here too. One, two, three. Is that oh, for you, you or just for me? Can you Are clap with me? Are we supposed to do it together? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, ready? I love one, when people count themselves off. One, two, two three. three. <laughs> Ooh, that, was, that was pretty solid, actually. <laughs> okay. Okay. Can you please introduce yourself to the radio audience, where you are and what you do. Hello, this is Lyra Lynn. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a singer, songwriter, music-making person. Don't waste your time Trying to ride the line You're not so sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You ever wonder how your favorite music is made? Like the hands that physically made it? If I didn't know more about Lair Lynn and the crazy two years we all just had, I would have thought that this song and her new record would have been made in a fancy studio by a large gang of long-haired plaid-wearing friends of hers in Nashville, like so many other moody gothic folk Americana roots rock records that are made these days. You know, tell the bearded and bespectacled producer to make it sound vintage, yet new, Warm and old, and yet new and shiny. Damn the torpedoes, just make it cross over, however that happens. But that's not how Lara Lynn's On My Own came to be. This song, this record, it's all her. As her first baby was on the way without any family allowed to help her during this COVID crazy time, she began writing, producing, recording, and creating this whole world of sound herself. A mainline direct into her imagination. A lushly stitched tapestry of stories and songs that to me seem to pinpoint the exact center of our collective dread and isolation as humans during this time. Perhaps reminding us again and again how much we need human touch, friendship, family warmth, and true soul connection. Yes, we are currently emerging into the light-filled end of this COVID-19 tunnel, but it's important to note that this interview was conducted back in 2020 in the thick of the harshest lockdown periods. The taping was actually lost, and I finally got the footage back this week so I can bring you this episode right now. And songs like Isolation especially hit the exact pain point for many artists like Lynn who once thrived on bringing live music's unique sweaty joy to strangers in new towns each night. Lynn's rising calls of is anybody out there seem to ring like echoes from a very recent bad dream. A dream, of course, that is still very much a painful reality in many parts of the world like Brazil and India. You know, I've read it's almost impossible to find much written about the 1918 flu pandemic and novels and poetry of the time. And why? The artists wanted desperately to move forward, to forget, to capture the raw energy of the roaring 20s as they began to shine. Is that what we're doing now? Trying desperately to forget already? 
I am super thankful that almost 50% of the American population is now vaccinated, and I see festival posters popping up, and in some personal news, my wife and I adopted a dog this week. Her name is Sunny, and I'm feeling a little in love and more hopeful than usual. But I'm also terrified that once I start bringing my music out in public again, no one will care. Or maybe folks will have forgotten how to support live music, to go to live music venues, to do this as part of their life. Do we remember how to all be together in one place, looking up at one singer behind one mic? Is that an old-fashioned, crazy thing to do? Maybe. Have we all changed that much? Maybe we've been isolated too long. Harry Frederick Harlow, the renowned American psychologist known for his maternal separation, dependency needs, and social isolation experiments on rhesus monkeys, documented that even with monkeys who had been isolated for only six months, their behavior and mental capacity had changed forever. The rehab attempts to reintegrate the monkeys into quote-unquote normal primate society were met with limited success. Harlow documented that this type of social isolation produced severe deficits in virtually every aspect of their social behavior. In a small way, Lara Lynn's music to me perfectly captures our limbo era in tiny technicolor droplets of sound, and I'm thankful I could talk to her about her process and how she created this audio magic with only her wits and her hands and her skills to guide her. Anyway, one last thing, My Squad Dust Bowl Revival is finally launching our virtual double concert experience. It's this week, May 6th, this Thursday, 7 p.m. Pacific, we will play our new album, Top to Bottom, and then May 13th, we will play old classics and brand new songs. Please support art and perseverance and grab a ticket and tell your friends. I would be so grateful. DustBowlRevival.com for more. That's it for me. Leave us a kind review on Apple Podcasts. As always, say I'm handsome. You know, like Brad Pitt and Legends of the Fall, but just a little shorter. Okay, here she is now, the lovely and talented Lara Lynn. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter more. I doubt it matters at all. Have people already asked you if your new record on my own is your Springsteen Nebraska moment? No. No one's asked me that. What? I'm shocked and and offended because I feel like (laughs) I had that moment listening last night where I was like, oh, this is her Nebraska. Where she just does everything on her own and it feels super intimate and dark and 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 a perfect uh journey into your brain. Well good. That's that's what I was hoping to create. I mean I I think uh if you're really lucky like Springsteen was or um Prince or so many artists who have actually achieved like McCartney who have achieved those records when they are able to get in there and do it the way they want to do it with no distractions and no uh, watering down of their ideas. Um, that's that's pretty special. It's a pretty special moment. Those are some of my favorite records that were made in that way too. On my land, through the badlands of Wyoming, I killed in my bed. Well, there's that conversation I read of recently of Springsteen 
discussing Nebraska where he said that he actually had a full band version of that record. Yeah. Interesting. And then I didn't he know that. listened back to his, you know, little Tascam tape demos. And he's like, there's something just more personal and more um, real about Compelling. These. You know, he has this relationship with his father that's very fraught and yeah. full of pain, but also trying to come to terms with that he is a part of his dad's story and he has mm-hmm. to tell the next chapter of that. And, you know, mm-hmm. I know you have uh, a tricky relationship with your dad and the alcoholism that you grew up as an only child in that relationship. Um, and was this record your way of offering forgiveness in some way sonically? Yeah. Gosh, you know, that is such a complicated relationship, isn't it? The one with your parents. <laughs> I feel like um, I'll be reconciling that in my entire life. And now I, I'm a parent also. And so it, the whole thing has shifted for me. But um, yeah, I think I think the record um, is sort of accepting and forgiving. I've been forgiving him. I've been working on forgiving him my entire life. But I think I, I, through this record, I'm starting to see him in a different way. It's hard to, I think, know what to say to your parents as you become a full-grown adult with your own responsibilities and sorrows, you know, mm-hmm. because we always see them as being older and wiser than us. And sometimes it reverses where we have to counsel our parents and to guide sure. them. And that's kind of a a bizarre situation where the tables turn. Have you felt that has started happening since you've become a mom? To be honest with you, I felt that way since I was very young. Um, So I think a big part of it for me is just uh, letting go of the ideal of what a father figure should be, understanding that he's just a person fraught with all of his own problems and issues that he never faced and, and not blaming him so much for it and, and forgiving him that way. I really love the, uh, let me tell you something track, um, from the new record about sort of this narrator, this, you know, could be your dad or it could be someone in your life who is sort of coaching you as a young artist being like, you know, maybe, Maybe you should get, maybe get a full-time job and have part-time fun. Like that's Mm -hmm. maybe a better way of going through life instead of putting all your eggs in this very fragile basket. It's kind of, you know, his advice, that advice was, was coming from a place of love. You know, this is definitely, you know, ass over the edge kind of profession who knows what's coming next, as you know. Um, But what are you going to (laughs) do when you're passionate about something, you're in love with something, that's what you do. But, um, so I do think some of his advice is good, you know, like keeping things simple, like, yeah, but I, I wish I could do that. I can't, <laughs> I'm, I'm deep in this thing now. Um, let me tell you something, kid, you got a lot to learn. Saying what you think it is, no, this whole thing about to burn. It's Just out of my own addiction, but, um, yeah, I, I, I thought it would be a really fun song to write to to release a song where someone's telling me not to release a song don't release don't do music <laughs> make a song out of that 
had a full time job and part time fun. So I really had fun with that one. A struggle, the climb up jigsaw puzzle, the never knowing how to hustle, only how to get yourself in trouble. Oh, if I was here. I've started questioning recently myself as a songwriter and, and what my real purpose is in the world in a, sure. in a world that is very uh, divided and very um, sick and in need of yeah. lifting up and my instinct oftentimes is to uh, write songs about the dark edges of society and, and, and teetering on the balance between the dark pool that you can tip, dip your toe into in your relationship and you could see if you're in a loving relationship and you're married, how quickly it could go awry and how quickly everything could end. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the fragile uh, balancing act of falling in love with someone is you always feel like, what if this person suddenly doesn't love me back? What if they are taken from me? And um, then I start questioning, like, does the world need that right now? You know, maybe this, maybe the world needs funky love songs about nothing, you know, like the Paul McCartney wing song where he's just like, the world doesn't need more pretty love songs or maybe they do, you know, maybe they do need more pretty love songs. Yeah. And it is a pretty love song. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I I think that people are always feeling those things, right? No matter what's going on around you, you're a little microcosm of love and will I be loved and accepted and or will I be abandoned it's always there you have a particularly dark uh body of work and I say that with love because I really need that music that type of darkness maybe that's why somehow true detective found you and Mm -hmm. put you into that dark uh storytelling but what is the happiest song that you think you've written over the last few years? <laughs> is there a happy song? Well, I thought Are You Listening was happy, and I, I almost didn't include it on the record. I was like, this is awkward. This is awkwardly happy. <laughs> I feel uncomfortable. As a child, I would dream of the bottom of the sea. If I swim deep enough, there was air to breathe. It feels more like questioning and ominous to me though but it is a little more it feels like a blondie song when that came on like from the it's 80s. kind of my my best attempt at, at, at happy <laughs> yes. I, you know it's a real challenge to write a happy song and not be cheesy I, I haven't mastered that I'm absolutely terrified of it to be honest You're not sold. Well, it's about maybe your own imagination and exploring that. Did you start writing stuff down as a very little kid? Stuff that came out of your head? I did. I think that is largely due to being an only child and spending a lot of time alone and not really having anyone to talk to necessarily about my feelings. And I mean, my parents were there, but, you know, they both worked full time and um, dad had his own own thing going. So, yeah, I would journal a lot. I had a huge box of journals just f- full of crap under my bed. 
I don't know what happened to that box. It'd be so interesting to read through those. Where did you grow up? Uh, mostly in Georgia. Spent the early part of my life in Shreveport, Louisiana. But we moved when I was about six to the Atlanta area. And, uh, and then I went to college in Athens at the University of Georgia. Number one pick in the NBA draft last night, University of Georgia. I know nothing about sports. <laughs> you know, I was uh, working in the service industry when I was in college, so um, that was my experience with the Bulldogs, all the uh, <laughs> drunk people coming to town. I never actually saw a game, sad to say. Everyone should work in a restaurant or behind a counter somewhere at some Absolutely point Absolutely agree. Life. I think it should be part of your, your, your GED, your diploma, yeah, or you can't get a job unless you've worked in the service industry <laughs> first. What was the best and worst part of working those jobs? The best part of it was uh, were the days off. Huh? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, when you work a job like that, you really appreciate days off. Yeah. And now that I do music, of course, I still appreciate days off, but I make my own schedule, and it's just not as potent that feeling of like tomorrow I don't have to do anything I can get up have brunch get wasted <laughs> or whatever you know right. <laughs> whatever you choose um the best part of it I, I guess it's just the social aspect it's great to talk to so many people that you don't know and um you know it can it can be fun sometimes it's just really hard work really really hard work Speaking of uh, needing human contact, which I think is actually the main reason I, I do miss sometimes working at a restaurant. You have this yeah. song called Isolation, you know, about technology and uh, quasi-connected conversations like we're having right now have completely replaced the ability to reach out and touch the person next to you. Normally, you'd be sitting in my living room. What has been the main uh, feeling for you since this shutdown has started? I found out I was pregnant in December, no, January. Um, before you knew about the virus or? Before, yeah. I think yeah. it was right before, yeah? Right before. And then uh, as my pregnancy progressed and the pandemic came on, I started feeling pretty frustrated because <laughs> pregnancy is painful and you need help sometimes, you need to exercise. Um, and I couldn't leave the house and I couldn't get like massage or help. I and mean, I, I feel like ridiculous even hearing myself say that. <laughs> um, but that was a big part of it. And also not having access to my people and needing emotional support during that time was really difficult. And I, that has continued on since the birth of my son. Just like I, you need people around you. You need, you need people to hold the baby. You need people to pat you on the back and say, you can do it. You know, It's really strange. Um, I, think, I think I would still feel isolated, but it has felt especially isolating being a new parent. Just a mix of metals at the bottom of the sea. I'm trying to put out a 
record and, and, and not seeing anyone through the process of releasing a record and not traveling it, it's just like, where, where am I? <laughs> what year is it? We're, so strange. Yeah, honestly, it's difficult for me to even connect to you right now. I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've done a lot more Zoom interviews. And I feel very connected to you right now. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, look, Sorry. I'm thankful that this exists at all. Because I am otherwise, too, but this is still, we wouldn't seems, be able to talk. It still doesn't seem real to me, you know? I'm like, I'm actually talking to a human right now. I feel very human. There's also this, you know, kind of energetic exchange that happens like, you know, the live audience thing, regardless of their reaction. Even if you couldn't see them, you can still feel that they're there, you know? Can you read the second verse, the voyeuristic plague verse as like a slam poetry style poem? <laughs> pret- pret- pretend, you're a, pretend you're a poet like back in Athens, Georgia, like in the student union. Okay. The lost art of touch, the voyeuristic plague. Junk food melodies stroke your hidden rage. Hands-free reality, pleasure is a must. When it's just you and machine, there's no need for trust. I love that. And it's interesting is that it's not just you and the machine. It's like machine, like it's like your dog. It's like someone in your family. It's like now fused into part of our lives that we can't separate ourselves from it. How are you going to keep your young son off of the iPhone 15 when he is of age? My partner and I were just talking about that. We've noticed that at three months old, he is already drawn to a cell phone or a laptop or a TV. You know, he's like touching my watch. You know, I have an iWatch. Um, and, and, you know, my partner said, well, we'll just we'll just stop looking at them. I'm like, no, we won't. I know we won't. And. I have no idea. I'm sure like by the time he's 15, it's probably going to be built into his brain already somehow. All right. So let's go back. You go to college in Georgia. Um, when do you put out your, your first record? Like 2011, I believe. My have first, met I actually put out a record in 2006 with a, with my first band. Um, I didn't really put out a record. I mean, that was before Spotify and all that stuff existed. So I made CDs, you know, and sold a few of them. Does that Burn even them count? With the, uh, CD, CD tower? No, I, I mean, we actually had some CDs manufactured. When I say we, I mean me. Um, but yes. What was uh, that band called? Birds and Wire. Please don't look it up. <laughs> Please, God. Typing in the internet. <laughs> wow. Um, it was kind of like um, it, it, it. There was a, a, a fretless five string bass involved. I'm just going to leave that. I'm just going to leave that there. Well, so <laughs> my first, uh, my first real release was 2011. Have you met Leo Lynn? There's a lot of talk I'm hearing everywhere I go. I keep learning things about 
know, I think Athens really had an effect on, on me, and especially on the sound of that record. There, there's just this sense of, um, you know, perfection as a, as a negative in the Athens music scene. You can think what you really like to embrace the grittier side um, of performance and production. and So I, I ran with that. That was sort of like Athens does traditional country, the Have You Met Lear Lynn record. Athens is where R.E.M.'s from, right? That's right. Widespread Panic is from there as well. And the B-52s. Weird Roots Rock, that, that's, <laughs> that's the category. What about that song Paper Anchor on that record? What? How do you know about that? You looked at that. I like that song. Thanks. What about it? I mean, you said what about it. What do you mean what about it? I think it feels like that first record, you're maybe focusing more on your voice, right? Well, yeah. I mean, did I even have a voice then? It's like, how do I sing? (laughs) No, I think you did. And you were like, look, I have this instrument that is powerful. What did you expect? Loving me so hard. My question to you is what you think is the main difference between yourself as a songwriter now and someone who wrote a song like Paper Anchor in that first record? I think acceptance is, is the biggest difference. Um, I, th- I feel like the new record, I feel like that's the, the common thread through this new record is accepting the circumstances, you know, it's all right. But but back then I was not accepting. Uh, I was challenging and angry. defiant streak in that chorus you know I find my home in the arms of strangers I find love in the way of danger a drunk man's daughter and a child of anger you know Mm -hmm. it's very honest but also like yeah you could feel the simmering resentment and the pain that you're trying to like get people to hear and see you know Mm -hmm. this was probably much more fresh then it was indeed yeah when all this passes and maybe you have your first real big blowout show. What's the first song on the new record you want to play in that set? What's, what's your MVP slugger song on the new record? I mean, I, I would love to play dark horse on a stage with a band. Mm. That seems like it'd be really fun. Come alive, call to say you're on the way over. See me try to turn my gaze any other way. I mean, they're all kind of like mm, somber. <laughs> you know, I think actually "Make You Okay" might be did it on my last tour in Europe um, at the very end of 2019, and people were just like crying, bawling in front of me. It and, is my favorite one that I've heard on the new record. Oh, thank you. I think yeah, it's a different it's a different kind of slugger, but you know. I remember you. 
People go to see you to feel things and to uh, <laughs> dive into the dark pool. That is the song. Yeah, that's yeah. sort of the the other side, perhaps, of Paper Anchor. It's the realizing that you know you're not going to change this person. You're not going to fix them. They have to uh, be who they are, and you have to be who you are. Yeah, acceptance. that song first come to you gosh you know when I was making the record I was keeping regular office hours just had a goal had a deadline that was the only only way for me to get it done um so I'd go in every day 10 a.m break for lunch work till five and for the most part would start with a drum loop or something um bass line and write in the studio, you know, so to speak. I wanted to free myself up from the guitar because I thought that was limiting me melodically and harmonically and limiting the form of songs that I could write. But um, I took a break one day, went to eat lunch in the kitchen, (laughs) had a guitar, and it just, that song just happened. Like, in an hour's time, it was done. Mm. And... um, I like to think of those as just like, you know, somebody just drops that on you. Thanks, whoever's out there. Song God. Yeah, thanks, Song God. And I remember I cried, and I've never cried. I mean, I've cried. I've been really upset about something, and like, I'm going to write about it. But I've never cried after writing a song. Like, I I just, I had this feeling that that I finally communicated a, a feeling or um, an experience clearly that I've never been able to communicate before. Well, that line, you know, I'm terrified I'm becoming you somehow is, I think, through the lens maybe of being a parent yourself now, you know, where this young person, your son, is going to be looking up to you for guidance. Yeah. And as a role model and as someone who should know best about everything. Yeah. And it's, it's like a lot of pressure, you know. It's like you're just you, you know. It is terrifying. That is um, just this morning. <laughs> I had this thought that now that I'm a parent, I realize that I really am a child. You know? Right. Um, sorry, Leo. That's my son's name. I, <laughs> what you can do, all you can do is look at, look at yourself and, and tr- give it your best try and be honest. I was thinking this morning, uh, 
And I've, I've brought this up with my, my, my therapist when I was seeing a therapist before the pandemic times, like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to fuck up my kid. She said, she said, everybody does. doesn't matter how thoroughly you've worked through your problems or, um, you know, how, how healthy you are, you're gonna, you're gonna screw your kid up somehow, some way. So. I know it is so out of our control at a certain point. Like this little person has his own ideas, has his own fate, you know, and we're around them to sort of guide and shape where their fate goes. But your son could be the next president. Your son could yeah, be Yeah, I thought that too. Like, God, do you think Beyonce's parents, when they put themselves together, were like, someday Beyonce's coming out of this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you never know. Well, me and my wife are always like, if we have a child one day, how do we know that child is not going to be like Charlie Manson? You know, it's like, yeah, how, right? Like, what if, what if you're just like, I did my best, and he, tr- he still wants to murder everyone. I, I don't know what. <laughs> is it because of all those weird songs I wrote that involved serial killers? Did it like seep into his genetics? <laughs> I mean, don't you think your environment? plays a huge role in whether or not you become a serial killer. <laughs> Hopefully. Like, at what age is Leo allowed to watch True Detective? Ooh. 20? Too many difficult <laughs> questions. <laughs> How did you get connected to that show? Um, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the Raising Sand, Ro- uh, Robert Plant, Alison Krauss record, yes. right? Okay, that was produced by T-Bone Burnett. He's also the producer of uh, music for True Detective. And my manager at the time had worked with uh, with T-Bone on the Raising Sand record, so she was just pushing my music his direction. Um, and he finally listened to it, and uh, I guess a light bulb went off in his head, and he, he came to have lunch in Nashville and said, do you want to write some for this show? And I was like, hmm. hell yeah. And... Voila! We got together and wrote 10 songs really quickly and tracked them really quickly, and the rest of it is history. This is my least favorite you Who floats far above earth and stone I mean, a lot of people have wondered what it's like working with him and seeing how he spins sometimes unknown artists into worldwide phenomenons um what was it like you know being in his sort of uh workspace it was surreal um i mean just being invited to act in the show too was was nuts i'd never experienced anything like uh, a bona fide film set you know and and being in the presence of uh actors of that echelon and this is season two, right? Season two, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a it was a dream. It was it was so much fun getting to fly out to LA and work in the studio with T Bone and um, going going on the set and just being there, being the girl <laughs> playing guitar in the corner. I mean, it was just um, such such an an odd and and beautiful experience. And I think, you know, T-Bone, I think one of his greatest skills as a producer is um, 
identifying people that are the, the, the right people for the job, you know. I think your style of lyric writing just fits naturally into that uh, twisted little world of True Detective and how they've been able to create this mood throughout the different seasons, regardless of it being totally different actors, different Mm storylines, you know, Um, especially that song, The Only Thing Worth Fighting For, you know, it feels like you were meant to be a part of that show, you know, as yeah, the sort I, of I the voice believe. of the conscience of these characters, you know. It, it it did feel a little bit like that. Yeah, I could not believe um that was the they were like we're going to use this for the first trailer. I was like, "Wow. Okay. <laughs> Amazing." You know, one of the one of the other great things about working with T-Bone was that um he really did encourage me to dive into the dark side and most of the time in music, uh that scares people away. You know, when you're trying to get music played on the radio, et cetera, you know, they want ambiguous lyrics and major keys and, and good tempos, up tempos. So I learned that there actually is an audience for dark music and um, really, really felt lucky to get to dive into that world. Uh, I really loved your 2018 duet record plays well with others. Um, I actually sent that to a bunch of friends recently because it's like all my favorite people in one place. You know, I've had uh, Dylan LeBlanc and and Nicole Atkins uh, and some of those folks on this show. And um, tell me about how you uh, worked with John Paul White on that uh, from Civil Wars down in Muscle Shoals. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a really, really fun record to make. And I think that was my goal in doing the whole thing. I was like, I want to have some fun. I just want to get a bunch of people involved in this that I respect, um, people that I would like to sing with, and let's get everybody together in a room. Can you believe that? And make a record. Remember that? Remember that. Um, So yeah, he's got a great little home studio down in Muscle Shoals. And it's it's set up in like an old Victorian house and... um, we just, we had plenty of time and, um, uh, John's great. He's such a, a, a great person, such a nice guy. And obviously he's immensely talented. And, um, I, it was his energy making the record was just the best, the best thing you could ask for. He's fun and easygoing and, um, just really elevated the whole project. I seen you up on stage I seen you melting hearts I heard you rock and roll I heard you're in the charge The one song I wanted to dive into real quick is uh, Nothing to Do With Your Love with J.D. McPherson, who I also had on this podcast once. Um, nice. One of my all-time favorites. And it felt like if Linda Ronstadt had like a haunted duet with like Tom Petty or something like cool in, in an alternate universe. Love. 
palpable sort of rage in that song at times is something like that I love about your lyric writing. You know, the the idea that you're talking about love in this sort of uh, way where you can't tell if it's going wrong or going right. Mm-hmm. And it's like the dark side of, of the moon is always being revealed and spinning around towards you. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, I mean, I th- that, that song was a, is a little bit cheeky, but, you know, hey, that's a fun song. But that, isn't that? Yeah. Is that kind of happy? <laughs> I don't it's want nothing with, to like, do with your love. <laughs> well, it's danger, you know? It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a hot blue flame. Passion. <laughs> <laughs> How did you meet your partner? Um, through music. Um, I hired him to play in my band. Uh, his name is Todd Lombardo, for everybody out there who doesn't know. What's up, um, Todd? I hired him to play in my band when I first moved to Nashville in 2012. And we were just friends for a long time. Um, he was married at the time. I was in a serious relationship. Um, but we just always had a great time together. We are friends and played music every now and then and toured together off and on. And he got single and I got single. And we're like, hey, what's up? Want to make a baby? <laughs> and now Leo's here. Did the conversation ha- happen in that tone? Because that would have been awesome. <laughs> more, hey, more, uh, more or less. I mean, <laughs> spread out over a couple of years' time, but yeah. How do you keep the flame lit when the kid is now here? You're always exhausted. You're sometimes, you know, in normal life, not in the same place at the same time for months on end. Mm-hmm. How do you keep that going in your life? I'm no expert on romance. I'll promise you that. Um, we we have been together for almost three years now. And all I can say is that the experience of having a child with this man has deepened my respect and admiration f- so much for him. He um, He just, she just keeps showing up every day. I'm just amazed that he he made me pancakes this morning because I only slept for four hours. Just sweet things like that. I think that's crucial, you know, just doing nice things for each other. And when you see somebody is really struggling, you show up for them. I mean, we just, we somehow, when one one is down, the other is up. And we, we just kind of go back and forth and keep keep each other balanced that way. How do you do it? What do you think the secret is? Well, I don't know. I think having things that make uh, you laugh oh, yeah. together, having things that uh, you're both passionate about um, and, and trusting each other, honestly. Mm, like, yeah. I think um, that's something that I've been very lucky to have with my wife, who I've now been married to three years, um, where it just, we both have had our heart broken, you know, mm-hmm. and I think we understood that we came out of relationships that were very damaging and very Mm -hmm. toxic. And we were not young people anymore. We were, you know, basically in our thirties and we're like, let's not be those, those people anymore. You know, let's be adults. Well, sometimes it's like choosing uh, safety and comfort and love over fire and danger. Agreed. Yeah. Because 
in your twenties or in, you know, even high school, like when you start falling in love with people, that's what brings you in. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the idea that this person's going to completely rock your world yeah. all the time. And that gets pretty old after a certain point, you know, that yeah. literally scientifically wears off, you know, mm-hmm. that initial like fire. The and chemical. Yeah. yeah. I think the hardest part is like trying to, have the uh, the passion part stay um, lit because sometimes you just fall into these routines where you watch Netflix at night and you walk around your neighborhood and you have the same thing for dinner every other night. Yeah, you know, especially it's like, living in quarantine, you know, cooking at yeah. home every night. Like, what are we going to make tonight? You want to go for a walk? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How about chicken and couscous? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Great British baking show. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> right. I don't, yeah. I don't you, really know the answer to that. I mean, I think you, it, it, it grows and morphs and, and passion deepens, you know, it, it looks a little bit different as you, as you get older and as your relationship grows, the flame burns for different reasons. Well, and you have these lines in your songs where you're always reminding yourself to not become this person that you grew up watching, you know, yeah. because we all are our parents in some ways, whether we want to be or not. Do you think there's something from your dad that's in you that is like the best part of him? Sure. Yeah. He wasn't all bad. Um, that's, a, that's a question no one has ever asked me before. I think that... Um, Gosh, I'm, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. I know, it's, it's, it's weird. I think we process things as songwriters sometimes more deeply than actually talking about it in the open as regular people. Well, I'm know. always going to the, to the negative side, you know? I, no one's ever said, what, a, what are the good parts that, that, well, you, be. that you have in you from your dad? Because you, he um, made you, regardless of who he is. He was a hard worker, um, and he was always telling me to uh, take care of myself and not depend on anyone else. Hmm. So I think I am fiercely independent as a result of, of that. He was that way. Those hmm. are positives, right? Yeah. In moderation. All right. Last thing I'm going to do uh, before I let you get back to your tiny child who is very cute in the background. <laughs> All right, there's a little creative exercise I'd like to do. I'm going to say a word or a phrase, and don't think too deeply, just the first thing that comes to your mind from any part of your life. When I say the word river. Joni Mitchell. Were you a big fan early on? Yes, huge fan. And we just released um, a cover of that, so it's the forefront of my brain. Oh, is it out? Did I mm-hmm. miss that? It's it's it just came out like a week ago. It's coming on Christmas. Listen to it on Spotify, folks. Yes, on repeat over and over. A <laughs> hundred million plays within the first month, please. Yes, Let's please. just do that. <laughs> Alright, the next word is Christmas. Is coming. 
Very um, soon. Very soon. Um, I gosh. What was the best Christmas present you got as a kid? You know, it wasn't really a, a, a gift per se, but my dad and I had, uh, this is, sounds like such a cliche. We had a train that we built this huge kind of like uh, mini village and had a, you know, train on tracks going through and we would only work on it at Christmas time. So he would buy more trees and little buildings and things for us to add to paint and add to build onto the, to the train at Christmas time. That, it's such a fond memory. All right, next one. Coffin. Um, I remember seeing the, these vampire people that thought they were vampires for real when I was younger, and they they would drive hearses around, and they had coffins in them, and like I I guess they would lay in them from time to time. I don't know. <laughs> Am I playing the game appropriately? Yes. Okay. Wait, where were those people? Uh, in Georgia, somewhere in in Woodstock, I think when I w- I think I was in high school, and I would I would see them regularly. There's like maybe, I mean I don't know how many of them there were, but I would see a few people who were dressed as vampires driving co- uh, hearses with coffins in the back. I like that. All right, yeah. last one. Mountaintop. Ah, oh. I. Just recently got engaged on a mountaintop. Oh, yeah. Which mountain? It's called I don't know the mountain, but it, um, the uh, the overlook we were on is called uh, Sunrise Rock in Highlands, North Carolina. Were you totally surprised? Absolutely, totally surprised. <laughs> I had no idea it was coming. We hiked up there to watch the sunrise. And I was pregnant as hell. And Todd was like, don't sit down. I was like, Psh, bet your ass I'm going to sit down. <laughs> and then he scrambled below me on the, on the mountain to, uh, to pop the question. All right. Take us out with uh, a song from the new record that you want people to hear who maybe won't have a chance to hear the new record until you get out into the world for real. Okay, this is... Um, this is called So Far. We'll, we'll, tell, we'll tell us about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, without, without blowing the twist ending. <laughs> um, what's the elevator pitch? What's the, what's the Hollywood producer elevator pitch? Two lines. Y- you were realizing that maybe it was a mistake leaving someone. Because you're so far removed from from it in time that you can't really remember what was wrong in the first place. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, explore your music with me. Thanks, Zach. It was really fun. Thank you. My, my, my. Look at what I've done to you. Look at what I put us through this time.
There she goes now, Lara Lynn, everybody. You can go to laralynn.com for her music. Uh, she has a tour date June 9th in Nashville, an intimate evening with Lara Lynn at the City Winery, so please check that out June 9th. Her newest record, which we talked about at length in this episode, is called On My Own. It is marvelous. She did it all herself. Please check that out. And uh, if you head over to the mothership, the bluegrasssituation.com, you'll see there was a really cool article in 2020 about that record, 5 by 5 so check it out, bluegrasssituation.com, for more. This is the last time I will tell you folks, Dust Bowl Revival My Squad will be having our virtual double concert launching this week, May 6th, on mandolin.com. We will play our new record, top to bottom, and you can get the second show, May 13th, for only $25 for both shows. We'll play classic songs and brand new tunes that we have played for no one else ever. So please check that out, dustbowlrevival.com, and we'll see you soon. As always, The Show on the Road is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lupatin, and we are part of the BGS Podcast Network. Stay safe, get vaccinated, leave us a kind review on iTunes, and we'll see you next week with new episodes on the trail. I don't think that's how I end this show, but uh, maybe I'll just end it like that this week. See you soon, guys. Bye.